Hello, this is Julian Charles of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 25th of September 2013, and today it's my great pleasure to be speaking to Nikki Rapana, who joins us over the phone line all the way from Anchorage in Alaska in the USA. And Nikki Rapana is an author, a journalist, a blogger, who for the last 10 years or so has been researching into the subject of communitarianism. And she and her daughter, Nordica Friedrich, began their research back in 1999. But by 2003, they had identified, and this is their words, they had identified the dialectical scam leading the world to adopt communitarianism. That is, communitarian solutions to various exaggerated or fabricated problems in the world. And central to their work is an investigation into global sustainable development and how genuine local efforts to become more sustainable are in fact being manipulated by this communitarian philosophy so as to further a globalist new world order agenda. So, Nikki, it's great to have you on. I know that our conversation yesterday didn't take place because of an incident with our rabbit here, which uh, <laughs> I won't go into in great detail. It's great to be speaking to you today properly. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Did you catch that rabbit, by the way? Do you know, we did actually catch the rabbit. It was out all night. We were quite convinced that it was going to get eaten by a fox, but my daughter did catch it this morning, so she did extremely well. And it's fine. It's back in its hutch now. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, as I said uh, yesterday, it would be tempting to just jump straight into a series of questions to get a handle on what communitarianism is all about. But, you know, that's really not an easy thing to do because it is such a nebulous subject. It's a kind of all-embracing kind of subject. So what I want to do to start with is to ask if you could give us a kind of snapshot as to what communitarianism is, a kind of headline, so we've got something to grab hold of to start with before we get into any detail. And sort of tell us something about how you and your daughter got into all this work. Well, we came up against the dictatorship of the community without knowing that that's what it was. And it took about a year to follow the language through all of the reasons that were given to us for these illegal home invasions, um, land grabs, many of the sustainable development principles and practices that were happening in Seattle in the late 90s led us to find communitarianism because that's where all of the terminology that they were using to justify their illegal actions was coming from. So it was a long process. It was a lot of reading because these things are buried in documents that go on and on and on. They're very repetitive. They're difficult to follow. They twist the language in a way that makes it all sound very benign. So it was difficult then and it's difficult now to get people to understand that basic terms that they use, just like the word community, doesn't mean what I thought it meant. Every time they used the word community, I thought they meant me too. But I lived in that community. And it took a long time to realize that when they say community, they mean themselves. Okay, can we go back to the very first base with this? Because you say that you were in Seattle at the time and you found yourself in a situation where you were asking questions about what was going on locally. Can you tell us what was actually happening? Well, there was a plan for a proposed Lightlink rail from shopping mall to shopping mall, which didn't make any sense at all because it's Boeing and Microsoft country and people commute for an hour and a half to two hours a day down there, so they always needed some kind of speed 
rail. And when I was a kid in the 60s, they called it a speed train. And then by the 90s, it was called Lightning Rail. And it's this really slow little train that goes off through all the old neighborhoods, took out all of the urban blight, which is what they were calling it, and they confiscated lots of property under this plan. And my landlord in North Seattle on Northeast 65th Street and 15th, which is the second busiest intersection in the north side, owned somewhere between 50 and 70 properties because he had always planned on working with the developers when the time came to develop that part of Seattle. And my involvement started by him telling me that the city was trying to ax him out of the plan, steal his property, and develop it their own way. So it wasn't even about any of the things that I work on now. I offered to help and just find out, see if I could get evidence for him of this, because I didn't believe him, okay? I told him, this is America. The government doesn't steal land from anyone. You know, you're overreacting. Well, the truth was he wasn't overreacting. And not only that, but inside the plans that I was studying to see what was happening with his property was where I found all of the new enforcement against the tenants. I wasn't a property owner. I was a renter. And to see so many of the things that were going to happen to us as his tenants and how we were used was what led me to communitarianism. So was this new rules and regulations that were coming into play that were changing the way in which development was taking place? Yes, they needed to know everything about everyone who lived there. So there was a big database that they were setting up. It was called 2020 by HUD. That was the community data software that they put out in the 80s, late 80s. And then there was the Compass program under the Department of Justice that was promoted by the Office of Community-Oriented Policing, which is an international policing program that's been adopted in pretty much every Western country now. And they claim that they have to control all the property. They have to control all the people to make it a safe and healthy neighborhood. And so when you were investigating this, you did you actually come across the term communitarian? Or was this something that you found out sometime afterwards and then thought to yourself, ah, yes, that's what I was investigating. Did you come across that term at the time? No, I didn't. It was through the answers I was getting from the Department of Neighborhood. Basically, what I was doing was looking up the words they were using. Quality of life. It sounded nice, but I didn't know what it meant. And they couldn't tell me. And they kept saying it's a livability issue. Well, I don't know what that means either. So those words are what led me to Etzioni. And then once I found Amakai Etzioni in the Communitarian Network, then I could see his books on people's desks and on their shelves. So many of the players in Seattle had read his books, were using his terminology, had put it inside the Roosevelt Neighborhood Plan, which was what we were under. Once I found Etzioni in the Communitarian Network, at least I could see the philosophy behind the actions. Uh huh. So it was uh, through that investigation that you came across these words, and then it was those words that led you to the source. Amakai Etzioni. He founded the Communitarian Network right around the time that Clinton was elected, and Blair. He was the guru to Tony Blair, and then there was Schroeder in Germany, was another one that was promoting it at the same time. 
I certainly want to come back to this man a little bit later, but I think we first of all need to pin down as best we can what uh, communitarianism is, and that's not going to be easy, as I said at the beginning of the interview. From looking at the two books which you sent to me, 2020 Our Common Destiny and the Anti-Communitarian Manifesto, which you've written with your daughter, the impression that I come away with is that uh, communitarianism is a philosophy. It's a kind of theory as to how to bring about change but it's also a practice, a practical way of bringing about change. So can you give us more of an idea as to what communitarianism is and how it actually works in the world? Well, from everything that I can find about it, it's a parasite philosophy, and it's a parasite religion, and it absorbs everything that's already in existence. So communitarianism, to them, is the overall bigger philosophy, more moral, more ethical than anything else that's ever existed because it combines every philosophy and religion on the planet. That's why it's so hard to explain. It's permeated every political party. What they say is that they're balancing the world. It's all about balance, balance between the individual and the community, as if there needs to be one, that we cannot operate separate from our community. And so therefore the community has to have the last say in everything that we do and how we live, where we live. You know, mainly it's a dictatorship. It's a scam to lure people with nice sounding terms to do things that will actually destroy where they live. And a lot more people who are actually genuinely working in sustainability, community gardens, you know, all of the things that people are doing to try and buy local, produce local. Everyone understands that that's a healthy place to be if you're not dependent on goods from other places, necessities, you know. There's been a a global movement of people taking back their local resources and control over their local environment. So what they've done is jumped on that. They're not the environmentalists per se, but they co-opted the environmental movement the same way they co-opted everything else they attached themselves to. Yeah. Well, this is the the impression that I got through reading the books, which I do think are fascinating, and I, I really do think people should read them. But is it an incredibly difficult thing to get your mind around it, just because, as you said in the interview, it's all-embracing. You know, it, this idea seems to be a kind of reinterpretation of everything. And so that's very confusing. You think, well, if it's everything, then what is it? You know, if it's everything, how can it be anything at all? But it's a kind of reinterpretation of everything. And we have to try and pin down what this kind of reinterpretation is. Now, the way I'd like to do it, can I ask you how this kind of thinking affects particular things in life? And maybe we can get an idea of what it is through that. So the first thing I want to ask you about is how it affects property rights. How is it changing the way property rights work? Well, first of all, the community has assumed the role of the caretaker of property. Um, In some of the documents I was reading in Seattle that were published in the 90s, it said that the community controlled all public and private property. They have to control the people, and they have to control the land. So the community is controlling private property. So I, as a person who owns property, I'm not really fully in control of my property. There's this thing, there's this idea called the community that has a kind of higher right to that property in some way. Yes, they claim the moral high ground. You have to prove that you are a good steward of that property in order for you to keep it. 
So if you don't follow their new regulations, which change all the time, they change so quickly nobody even knows what they are ever. And that's part of the plan too, okay? Communitarian law is the most confusing thing you'll ever try to figure out. It's hard enough to figure out their philosophy, but their law is amazing. So private property rights are gone under communitarianism. They don't exist. So it can be said in law that you do have, you know, you have property rights, but you have to conform to these various standards. And presumably those standards can be as onerous as you like. And if you don't conform, then to say that you have property rights is just purely academic. You, in fact, do not have any rights. No. And see, what we have to understand for me as an American is property rights under our Bill of Rights aren't the same as what you get in the UN Charter. Ours come from God, our Creator, and no man can take them away. A man didn't give them to us, a man can't take them away. And I can't give away my rights in perpetuity, you know? We can't even take them from the future generation under our Bill of Rights. But the UN Charter and human rights, you have to be a responsible person in order to keep your rights. There's a clause. Yes, you have all these rights, but if you're not a good person, then you don't have them anymore. You know, that sounds so nice, doesn't it? Rights and responsibilities, but, yeah, that's so deceptive because it depends how that's read, you know. It can be read as you have rights and we, we all have responsibilities, so there's a kind of social expectation that one carries out responsibilities. But if you make it a legal basis to that and say, if you don't actually carry out these responsibilities, then that removes your rights, that's appalling. Yes, that is what they think. The good people are going to get to live in the communities, the town or the city that you live in. And what they mean by good is someone who serves the community when they're told. Because all of the programs I was looking at in Seattle, the data that they were gathering on the individual citizens, the private citizens living in privately owned property, they were assuming that the community had a right to know everything about the people in the homes and that they were going to help everyone in the homes to see if maybe they had an alcohol problem or a drug problem or they yelled at their kids too much or they had some kind of mental problem that they needed to have an intervention, you know. So part of this program was them actually going door-to-door. The institute is called the Asset-Based Community Development It's at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and these are the people that trained Barack and Michelle Obama. John McKnight and Jody Kretzman are the founders. I met Kretzman in Seattle in July of 2000. For years before that, they had focused on this thing called POP, Problem-Oriented Policing, and they identified all the problem people and problem properties in the neighborhoods, and then they started what was called Weed and Seed, and they pulled the bad weeds and replanted good seeds. So it was an attack on people who nobody wants to defend, the low-life, the drug dealers, the foreigners that nobody can understand or whatever. You know, anybody that didn't fit in, they moved them out. They moved a lot of black people around in Seattle in the 90s, the ones that didn't have the good jobs or the good cars. And they don't want those kind of people. That's not a good community. A good community is antiseptic, upper middle class, rich people. You know, and the majority of people don't fit that classification. So you can be moved pretty easily under this program. We were called transients with a significant negative impact on the neighborhood. Renters, okay? And that was right in the plan. Good heavens. 
what interests me about this is how the word community is being used, because is it a genuine use of that word where you have input from everybody in the locality to decide how things should be done? Or is this some bureaucratic nonsense coming from above saying this is what the community wants and it's really being imposed on people? Is that what you're saying? Yes, there was over 6,000 people in our small neighborhood in Seattle. And when they started it with their community groups, they were all architects, engineers, planners, and people with a vested monetary interest in seeing the plan fulfilled. And they had targeted the properties in the neighborhood that they thought they could do a better use of those properties. And that was the big Kilo versus the city of New London case. I think it was 2005 where the Supreme Court refused to rule and said the cities and and towns could determine that on their own. So there was no protection. So if the city said that they could make more money off your property by doing something different than what you were doing with it, they could abate the property under best use for higher tax base, maybe. That was actually the main one they were talking about. But like our properties, they were targeted because they wanted to prove that we were a public nuisance. So anyone that doesn't fit their upper middle class motif is considered a public nuisance under this plan. The community is them. And when they said that the community all agreed to the Roosevelt Neighborhood Plan, I went door to door throughout my neighborhood asking everyone who answered the door if they had approved the plan. And every one of them said to me, what plan? So that was the first thing in the book was what plan? Because nobody even heard about it. Yeah. So there was really no input from people in the community at all. And so this sounds to me very much, I think you actually do use the word in the book, a technocratic order that's going on here. You, you have all these, as you say, upper middle class, you've got the architects, etc. They are imposing what they consider to be the good of the community. But in fact, there are all these vested interests and they are abusing that term to give the impression that this is good for everybody. But in fact, it's really coming from the top. Yes, I called it in one of my articles, Enlightened Rule by Scientists and Experts. And the way that they did it in the U.S., they had what they called these visioning meetings. They said in all of their documents that they tried to get everybody to come. Well, Americans don't do business that way. They don't go to meetings. They're too busy working and paying taxes to the Fed. They don't have time. And they know this, Okay. In Anchorage, we studied their plan, and we actually put that plan in 2020. The whole thing was they come out with the plan, and they tell you that this is what we see, and we'd like your input. And then they edit out all the input that doesn't go along with it. They identify people who aren't going to go along with it. They become ostracized, and the only people that stay are the ones that are greedy because they appeal to the greed. Most greedy people can see past all that loveliness and say, I can make money on this, or I can get rid of that neighbor I hate. I think certainly one of the things that comes to my mind when you talk about visioning meetings is Soviet model, you know, where you have the ideas coming down from on high, this is the way it's going to be, and then you have your local officers going out to the community holding meetings, supposedly to talk to the local people and, you know, see what they think. But basically what you're doing is just telling them how this is how it's going to be. And, you know, that sounds like a very sort of Soviet kind of model going on there. But you say in the book that communitarianism isn't communism. And it isn't capitalism. It's some sort of mixture of the two. So could you describe how that works? Well, there's a formula. 
and it's called the dialectic. I wasn't ever trying to teach the dialectic. I was actually, our, what is the Hegelian dialectic, which is part one of the Anti-Communitarian Manifesto. That was what I sent to Etzioni. Hmm. This guy, Dr. Etzioni, he is central to this. He, obviously, he's not the originator of the dialectical method. We need to go back to Hegel, who we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, this Etzioni is central to bringing the communitarian doctrine to fruition. Now, you describe him as the most influential living communitarian thinker and guru in the world, and that he has this, what you call an ideology of balancing. So can you describe what that is and why that's so important to this thinking? Well, the balance that Etzioni proposes is to balance the rights of the individual against the rights of the community. The idea is if um, an individual doesn't want to go along with anything that the community says they have to do, they regulate them. So most of it has been done through regulations. You know, these ridiculous things that people are told they have to do. Your house, you can't paint it without permission from the community. Homeowners associations are completely communitarian. They've introduced it in so many ways. The Communitarian Network's mission statement is to shore up the moral, social, and political environment. And I looked at shore up, you know, because I really wanted to know for sure what that meant. And it means to prop up or hold up something that cannot stand on its own. So their basic premise is that our moral, social, and political environment cannot stand up without them, period. And that they have to balance any ideology or any law that we have that supported our former wrong view of liberty, freedom. Those were just extreme views that ruined everything. And so now all of these rights have to be balanced against the responsibility to serve the community. So there seems to be this kind of relativizing of any differences whatsoever. So, well, I have a quote here, actually, which you have in your book from the Institute of Communitarian Policy Studies at George Washington University. And this is talking about Etzioni. Let me quote it because I think this pinpoints it very well. It says, in the wake of the 2008 presidential campaign, Amitai Etzioni writes that Americans are defined and define themselves by race age, political affiliation, country of origin and native language, but that we as a people want to look beyond these divisions to the values and interests that unite us. New common ground embodies this zeitgeist, showing the ways that traditional boundaries among ethnic groups, political ideologies and generations are blurring and how to hasten the process. So it seems that all those differences between people are being painted there as divisive and that we need to somehow relativize all those differences, make them somehow not important anymore so that we can give over control to the technocrats who are coming in and saying, well, we have a better way, a better politics, a better way of relating to each other. Uh, To my mind, this whole thing sounds deeply patronizing and controlling. It's offensive to me. The more I read about what they said about what was wrong with the people, and this is everywhere, okay, he wasn't just talking about Americans, and they're talking about everywhere. And what's interesting about Etzioni is that Etzioni is a Zionist who grew up in the kibbutz in the British Mandate for Palestine and was a terrorist during the de-inviting of the British and then fought in the Arab Wars. And then he went on to study Kabbalah and mysticism under Martin Buber, 
and then he came to the United States to be the guru. Aha, so that's very interesting. So he actually does have a kind of mystical background to his thinking. Oh, very mystical. That, that's very interesting because there is a link there with Hegel, because it was said, I'm not sure who said it, it might have been Charles Taylor who wrote a book on Hegel, where I believe this quote comes from him, saying that Hegel's philosophy started out as mystical insight. So there is a link there. This is why we do need to go back to Hegel, because I do think if we can get a, a handle on the kind of thing that comes out of his work that was grabbed onto by the communitarians, I, th- I think that would be really helpful. So if it's OK with you, can I make a stab at how I view it? And then could you come in with ways in which you either agree or disagree with that? Would that be OK? Absolutely. Go ahead. OK, so the way I understand this would be to say when people look at Hegel's work, they normally get out of that a framework of understanding. And that is a thesis and an antithesis and a synthesis. So out of his teaching comes something like this, that you have a proposition of some kind, some belief statement that you call a thesis. And then he would say, well, then you have an opposite proposition, which states the opposite, and that's the antithesis. And then Hegel comes along and says, okay, so these two things are opposites, but in fact, each statement has some truth in it, has some truth in it, has some falsity in it. And what we need to do then is to form a synthesis out of those two statements by finding what's truthful in each of those, discarding what's false in each of those, and this synthesis will then bring us into a higher state of truth. And then that becomes the new thesis. That's the new proposition. And this process goes on and on because there will be, in fact, some truth to that, more truth than there was previously, but there'll still be some error in that. And so this this whole process goes on filtering out error, increasing the amount of truth by bringing these opposing thoughts together, making new syntheses all the time. And this is a kind of historical process that goes on and on and on, and things get better and better. But my feeling about this kind of philosophy of history is that who is it who decides what the synthesis is? Who guides this process? And that's what worries me about Hegel's thought and how it seems to me it can be a tool for despots to come along and say, ah, well, we're the people who are going to say what's true in what you think and what's true in what you think and bring those ideas together. We're guiding that whole process. Now, do you think that that was the kind of flavor of Hegel's thought that the communitarians thought, ah, this is what we can use? Well, yes and no. I think that Hegel was an initiate, and this is an ancient idea that mankind will only reach perfection in philosophy. So when you go back the philosophy that all of this is based in, you can find the same thread in Plato, Aristotle, the consistency of that idea that philosophy is the ultimate truth. The purpose of this Hegelian dialectic and many other dialectical forms that have been created along the way, like Marx's dialectical materialism, turned Hegel's dialectical idealism supposedly on its head. But the purpose was always the same. The underlying reason for the dialectical way of thinking was social evolution is what they're promoting through the dialectics. So the the dialectical process is used to push us into accepting new ideas. You won't find the American Bill of Rights in the dialectical process. It's completely not part of it. 
protecting individuals from invasive government because that's what the Bill of Rights is. It's basically a set of rules that they cannot cross these boundaries. And so the purpose of all of this is to get around that idea that they have the right to do all of the things that the Americans said, no, you can't ever do these again to anybody, our children, grandchildren, and forever. They reserve these rights in perpetuity forever for everyone, saying that these are basic standard rights. That the king cannot come into your house unless he's invited or he has a warrant with the authority of law behind it. Sure. And then what Hegelian then does is to come along and say, ah, yeah, but that's a thesis. There's some truth to that, but there's some error to that. Somebody else might think, well, it might be important to give up those rights or suspend those rights for the good of the community, and there's some truth in that. So let, let's bring those two ideas together and find that, yes, under certain circumstances you can uh, use your rights, but there'll be other circumstances where you have to give up that for the good of the community, and that, that's a higher truth that we've reached there. Yes, and the process, like between the obvious ones, capitalism and communism, which I am convinced they created both sides of that dialectic. In fact, in all the major dialectics they created, and still control to this day both sides. To Hegel, war was the best way to move humanity forward. Mm. So if they can create a dialectic that's so strong that the people on both opposing sides will kill each other over it, fantastic, they say. This is the best thing that could ever happen. Sacrifices must be made for the common good. That's another theme within all of their writings. In this dialectical process, yes, many will suffer, many will die, but look at how good the outcome will be when we finally achieve it. And in all of their dialectical writings, all the philosophers agreed that at some point, man would reach perfection in the philosophy, and that the perfect solution would be so perfect, there would be no opposition to it. Zero. None. And so when we wrote our thesis against communitarianism as the perfect synthesis in the Hegelian dialectic, part of the reason why we published it was to prove that there was opposition and therefore it cannot be perfect based on their formula. And why it's so hard to understand is because this same dialectical process has gone on. I mean, we set it up so good that there was a dialectic between men and women, between family members. This is the discord amongst most people is when these ideas come into our lives and we are told to choose one side or the other, you're either with us or against us, you know? I mean, this is craziness. This is the insanity to me of the whole idea is that it's pushing us to fight for people that we should be loving and embracing with all our hearts. This does seem to be uh, central to this whole thing uh, of, of exaggerating differences between people because we do have differences. We do believe different things. We hold different opinions. And I actually think that's important. But what I feel that this kind of thing does is to come in and, and exaggerate and reinterpret those differences of opinion to make them more antagonistic so that they can then come in and say, ah, oh, well, you see what differences do. They sow such discord. We, we can bring everybody together. Though it seems such a distortion of genuine differences that people may have about things. Yes, and a lot of times what they do is they become their own opposition, and they create something. Some people call them false flags or false events, you know, where when they're trying to push an issue that has no sides already. So let's... um. Let's turn to 
some ways in which this kind of thinking, this communitarian thinking, is actually being played out in the world. Now, you've already mentioned a number of things. You've mentioned Agenda 21, sustainable development. You've mentioned the way that policing is changed. Can I ask you about each one of those in turn? First of all, Agenda 21 and sustainable development. I talked to Michael Shaw about this a few weeks ago. Can you explain how communitarianism is the real philosophical driving force behind Agenda 21 and sustainable development? Yeah, well, that's kind of hard to do because there is no direct connection between communitarianism and Agenda 21 except for the one that we made. It's only in the language within the plans and the way that the plans are introduced and then the purpose of the plans is a communitarian purpose, but if you don't understand the communitarian language and you won't see that. You'll never make that connection, which is why for uh, 14 years... Really, it's still very few people even mention communitarianism when they talk about Agenda 21, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what I'm wondering is if there is a link here which we can explore, because you mentioned about the visioning meetings or visioning councils. Now, that's also something that Michael Shaw mentioned about how people are invited uh, to discuss what's going on with new smart developments and these kinds of things. Now, you've said that often people don't turn up to these meetings and the people who are organising it know that people (laughs) are not going to turn up. Now, if those meetings are modelled upon a communitarian philosophy, then there's a link there straight away that this is a, a philosophy that's being used in order to try to get people on board to sustainable development and Agenda 21, smart developments, this kind of thing. So how is the communitarian philosophy making those meetings happen? What's going on in those meetings that is communitarian? Well, a good place to look for that right now would be Aruba. I was contacted by some sustainable people in Aruba who have been very conscious of, I think they work with the Rainbow Coalition to these are environmental organizations that have been active in cleaning up their local waters and their local air and, you know, pushing legislation to stop poisoning them which is legitimate in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have never gone after the environmentalists quite the same way a lot of other people do because they have legitimate concerns, serious concerns. So what happened with him when this guy started writing me, he was very distraught because they already had what they thought was a good plan that worked for Aruba. It was written by Arubans, and Amitai Etzioni came down there and had a couple meetings with their president and suddenly they had to incorporate all these new things into their local plans based on Etzioni's advice. He was very upset, wanted to know who Amitai Etzioni was. He looked him up, and then he found our work and contacted me and started explaining to me how horrified he was that some foreigner was going to come in and make changes to their local resource management plan. So in some cases, Etzioni is actually directly on the ground advising these presidents on how to revise their plans because the communitarian legal system is what they're building under Agenda 21. It's about the law. There is a system of law called the Supremacy of Communitarian Law, and it's part of the UN, but not as openly as it is in the EU, okay? The EU is the one that every member nation that joins the EU has to adopt their national constitution and rewrite the legislation to accommodate international communitarian legal principles. And the main legal principle that they're adopting is that communitarian law is supreme law. It overrules every national state constitution in existence. 
And some places, like Bolivia in 2009, rewrote their national constitution, adopting communitarianism as the supreme layer of law. That's the one thing that they don't want people in the countries to know, that they're actually changing the system of law with communitarian philosophy, but they're not telling anybody really what it is in most places. It depends on where you live. In some places, they're very open. United States, they're not. UK, they're not. It's the implementation of all those standards and regulations under Agenda 21. And they're not called Agenda 21 law. They're called communitarian law. So that's the main connection. So whoever these unelected communities are, these community groups, community councils, and many of them, they've already been trained in other ways. They've gone to the same universities. They belong to the same fraternal organizations. There's little groups of these people. They work together. They hire each other. They're the ones that studied this stuff in college years before anybody even knew what it was. So now they're the professionals and the experts and they're the the leaders in every community. And they keep saying that they have to identify the leaders in the communities. And I just started asking the other day, what do they mean by leader? Because what they're doing is going into the community, identifying the leader who already understands communitarian principles and speaks the language and understands the goal, which is human social evolution, forced. And they're okay with that. What kind of person is attracted to communitarianism, to me, it now is just as important as the system itself. Who are these community-minded people that really like the idea of making you lose your home or lose your job or lose your children or lose your animals? And that's what's happening all over this country is these little regulations that are shutting down just little minor things. And so you, as a person, like we had home inspections without warrants. And a lot of people didn't care that that was happening to us. Even when I told them we're a pilot test, And if they're successful in Seattle with this, they'll do it everywhere. And people didn't understand how incremental that is. And then they always say in their meetings, we've been working on this for a really long time. They mean it. They have been. Communitarianism has been around for a really long time. And so there are some people that have been told that they're special, right from the probably birth, I don't know, and that they are here to save humanity from themselves. There's a whole other part. This is religious law. It's not just law. It's based on their religion. And when you understand the communitarian religion is one of serving the community, which is why they've been able to co-opt so many people that are the good people. It's really the good people that are going along with this and think it's a good idea to help their neighbors and help the underprivileged or help clean up the streets. They're the ones that go out and pick up a litter on litter day, you know? I mean, there's a lot of good people. (laughs) And so they have bought into this in a way that's so sad. Well, you bring up this religious dimension, and uh, one thing that I immediately think of is, you know, I'm a Christian, I believe certain things to be true and other things to be false. You know, I mean, just, just pick an example. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, let's say. And um, I know that my Muslim neighbor will disagree with that. And in fact, I've spoken to many Muslims over the years, had great conversations, you know, absolutely fine. We talked about the things that we agree, so many things we agree on. We talked about the things that we disagree on, no problem whatsoever. And yet my feeling is that the communitarian wants to come in and say, oh, well, look, you know, when people disagree, there's discord. And when people disagree, that leads to war. So really what we need to do is to recognize that uh, we're all the same, really, and then recommend, 
a kind of universal religion, you know, where we can all get together and realize that we're all the same and all our differences don't matter. But that strikes me as a new religion. It's not really a synthesis of opposing views. It's saying people cannot have any views at all except to accept this new religion, which we can call a communitarian religion. Do you feel that something along those lines is beginning to shape up with the use of pagan deities tapping into indigenous religions? I mean, did we not see in Bolivia a rewriting of the constitution actually invoking Mother Earth? Well, what I found very, very interesting was when I found out that the Mother Earth religion of Bolivia that... uh, was introduced as law at the last Rio conference, the big Rio plus 20, as the 11 laws of Mother Nature in honor of, it's called Mother Earth Rights, and actually they proposed to give Mother Earth the same rights as humans. Pretty interesting read. And yes, they say the Pachamama is based in 500 years of communitarian tradition. So... They've already identified that religion as communitarian. And then you can look at the laws and see how ridiculous these laws from Mother Earth are and look up the Pachamama Alliance sometime and you'll see how many people around the world love this. Because, again, on the surface, it sounds like they're saving Mother Earth from the bad corporations that are destroying the planet. So this is, a, this is actually a way of getting people to go along with a program that might be to their detriment, but they'll think, because there's a religious dimension to it, they'll have a motivation to go along with it. Oh, I'm doing good. In fact, I'm doing spiritual good. I might, might involve personal sacrifice, giving up my private property or whatever it might be, but I'm serving Mother Earth. This seems to be a really cynical misuse of religion, actually. Yes, it is, and it's rude. It's rude to take indigenous people and all of their beliefs, and put them under one blanket ideology created by dialectical thinkers. And so that piece of it, they never want to tell you how deep the deception is and how easy it is to convince people that they're doing something good. So um, they take the best, okay? They've taken the best from Muhammad. They've taken the best from Buddha. They've taken the best from Confucius. Because in China right now, there's a whole rejuvenation of Confucianism, and they're calling it communitarian Confucianism. So each area of the world where there used to be a lot of people believing the same thing have already been co-opted under communitarianism. And the pagans, who may or may not really have worshipped Mother Earth all these years, I don't know, but now they're being told that that worship is communitarian worship. So it's just as rude to the pagans as it is to the Christians, as it is to the Muslims, as it is to the Tibetans. Now the Tibetan monks are supposedly all communitarians. Everything is being defined from a communitarian perspective. So when we embrace communitarianism fully, which Bill Clinton said again, we're almost there, people. He just said that the other day. You know, they have their cheerleaders out there. The world has advanced into a higher state of being. Yeah, I do expect that the majority of people who use this term don't really understand all the ramifications that you've been talking about. I suspect they look at it as a a warm, fluffy community kind of word, and they look at the warm, fluffy language and think, oh, that sounds good. I suspect the vast majority of people in these organizations don't realize the danger that's there, and that, in fact, it's only a very small number of people who actually 
are manipulating this situation. But it, it does strike me that you're right. There is manipulation going on here because it seems so intrinsically cynical as a system. And I think you bring that out very, very well in the book with the research that you've done and the masses of quotes that you put in the book which illustrate this. So I think really for people to get a proper grasp of this, they really do need to read your books, the 2020 Our Common Destiny, and also the Anti-Communitarian Manifesto. So I'm going to link to both of those in the show notes. Um, is there anything that, as we're coming towards the end of the conversation, is there anything that you would like to say that to sort of sum up? And I'm thinking here in terms of everything we've said so far seems negative, there's this big problem. There's this way of thinking that seems to be increasingly taking over the world. And as individuals, we can think to ourselves, well, there's nothing I can do then. You know, I can't be like Nikki Rapana and write a book about it. And so what can I do just as an ordinary person to help this situation at all? What advice would you give? Stop choosing sides. That's the dialectic. Pick a side, any side. We don't care what side. And then we'll argue till we kill each other. Stop that. That's the key. <laughs> if we quit choosing sides, there would be no sides. There would be no dialectic and there would be no synthesis. You know, we're constantly bombarded with issues that we can't really know all the facts about and forced to choose a side. And to stay out of that is almost impossible for people. You know, how do you feel about smoking? How do you feel about religion? How do you feel about cars? All of these debates, these are fake debates. They're not even real. They don't even need to happen. They're just consuming our daily lives with, you know, ideas and ideology and, and that we don't even know why we're arguing. We're just arguing. I don't know how to tell people really to stop arguing, but I won't engage. Every time someone tries to get me to engage, I say, I don't argue inside the dialectic. It's a circular argument. It goes only one place to communitarianism. Just to be anti-communitarian is to think for yourself. Because what you're saying is, I don't want your solution. I don't buy your argument, and I don't want your solution. And, you know, our only advice was ever to people to think for themselves. Sure. Let me get you absolutely right here. You're not saying that we shouldn't have views about things. It seems to me that what you're saying is that we can have our views, we can believe certain things to be true and other things to be false, but we shouldn't be drawn into destructive debates about these things which lead nowhere, which is what the communitarian wants us to do, so that they can then come in with their solution. Is that what you're saying? Yes, because there are some things that can't be argued. What you believe is what you believe. Why would I ever argue with what you believe? If you notice, there's never an end. These are never-ending debates, and they're circular. And each side just gets worse and worse, flinging more insults, because eventually it just generates a second-grade terminology, you know. Well, you know, I'm not sure I, I fully agree with you on this. So I just want to come back to my example that I had, if you, if you don't mind, about that, you know, talking to Muslims, for example. You know, I believe certain things, and my Muslim friend believes other things. And although there's very much in common, there are these things that we disagree on. And yet every conversation that I have had with a Muslim over the years, and that's several conversations, I've never fallen out. There's never been any ill feeling. Because it's not normal. That's what I'm saying. It's not normal. But we do have differences of opinion about things. And we do have a conversation where we are actually disagreeing with each other, but there's no ill feeling there. The communitarian, it seems to me, wants us to do one of two things. If you disagree, that will lead to strife. That will lead to war. So, therefore, the second thing is then don't have opinions. Exactly. Don't talk to each other. 
just say, oh, no, we basically believe the same things, or these things don't matter, or we're not going to have opinions about them. And I, in that case, I think the communitarians won. Well, the, what they do is shut down, real, they shut down the real conversations that don't lead to violence. Uh-huh. Those are the ones they don't want you to have. One of the first things I read was that when Israel became a state in 1948, it shut down academic discourse between Muslims and Jews and Christians. And that was really important to me to see that there had been academic discourse for years prior. And as soon as one type of political ideology took control of the academic environment, it shut it down. The same thing in Nazi Germany. If you didn't go along with the party line, you were fired. You weren't allowed to teach. So any academic discourse that doesn't lead to a communitarian war, then why have it? It's pointless to them. So I've had some wonderful conversations with Muslims, too, in the course of this study. And they're they're very respectful. Absolutely. Every one of them has been very respectful. So I know that the dialectical concept is phony. And I know that it doesn't exist between people who really do want to learn, because it's learning when you're talking to someone, you're, you're learning about them and what they believe, not necessarily that you're going to jump on their bandwagon, but you want to know. Those questions can't be asked anymore within anybody that watches television or listens to the radio all the time has got this bombardment of dogmatic sayings that they latch onto, and that starts the fight. As soon as you start attacking someone, they attack back, boom, it's over. There is no discourse. Absolutely. It's the presenting of caricatures and sound bites that does whip people up. And I often think that this is the way that the conflict between Christians and Muslims is being whipped up in many cases. Yes. So, um, it's, you know, that's the part of my, our message. If you ha- we don't have a message, but, you know, that depressing negative. <laughs> Well, your message seems to be along the lines of try not to get drawn into this manipulation. You know, hold to what you believe, but don't let that ever be manipulated by these communitarians. Yes. And once you understand the dialectical process, that they need the conflict. It's conflict-driven ideology. If there is no conflict, it doesn't work. And so even though there's a lot of Americans that are like, you know, ready to fight back, but you're buying right into them. The more violent we become, the more we help hasten the communitarian solution. So they've got us in a catch-22, and that's where they want us. And so what I'm trying to do with my work and my daughter, too, is to open up the debate so that people can think of other ways, because no two people can think their way out of this massive con, this massive deception that's just everywhere. So all we did was identify the formula for the deception. And from there, you know, anything that I would try and do to put on top of it and tell people what to do would be buying into the deception. Because the deception says somebody else, there's an expert who can solve this for you. And you look for that expert. You look for that professional, that person with the title of nobility next to their name that says they somehow are smarter than you. And it's the common man who's the biggest threat to the communitarians. They can see through this the best. They call it, at Harvard University, it's called the healthy instinct of the plain man. And it's been their goal to get rid of that all along. So they fill the plain man with a bunch of propaganda to fight each other. Mm-hmm. The, the area of the world that I live here in the north of England, they say about using your nouse. <laughs> Just the guy on the street uses his nouse, you know, and uh, very often gets the right answer where 
the high and mighty just gets things wrong, you know, tied up in all their theories and the like. But the ordinary person uses their nows. <laughs> yeah. After the first EU constitution was voted down by the Irish, yes, they did a exit poll. I watched part of it, and they talked to this middle-aged Irish woman, and they asked her how she voted, and she said, "I voted no." And they asked her why she voted no. And she said, well, I couldn't understand anything in there. And I figure anything that I can't understand can't be good for the Irish. Indeed. Uh, absolutely. And so the reaction to that was, oh, well, I'm afraid the people got it wrong. We need to uh, do the vote again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The Dutch and the French also voted down the EU constitution in 2005, I think it was. And they, it was in the newspapers over there. I think I put this quote in the book, that it was rejected because of the supremacy of communitarian law clause. So two nations of people understood that they were giving up their national sovereignty in a way that they weren't willing to do, because communitarian law is vague and evolving. It'd be one thing if they gave us a set of rules that we could all live by, and people could vote and say, yes, that sounds good to me. No. You'll never know what communitarian law is because it's not written in stone. Mm. And you say in the book that the EU really is the testing ground for a global application of this. The EU is the model, yeah. Each regional union that they're forming is being formed under communitarian supremacy of law. The WTO uses it. Um, It's not spoken of very frequently. And there's case law in Luxembourg going back to the 50s on, on these community laws. So, and they call it community law interchangeably with communitarian law in the EU. Can you direct people to your website? You have a couple of websites, and you also have a website advertising your book. Can you say where people can get hold of that? The book can be ordered from Nord, that's N-O-R-D, dot T-W-U dot net slash A-C-L. And we used to have an enormous website at the ACL because I put every bit of research I ever found on there. My daughter said it was just too much. Most of the readers were overwhelmed. So we took it down and tried to revise it. And we still have all that old research, but we're in the process of redoing the whole site. Right now, it's just basically a place to order the book. And we're coming out with another run here within the next month. So anybody that orders the book now, they're not going to get it right away. It's going to take a few weeks. The ebook, as soon as we get the order, we can send the PDF for that. And then my blog, that's just nikkirapana.blogspot.com. And I called it Living Outside the Dialectic, Seeking a Path Not Included in the Plan. That's really what I'm doing. I'm just trying to find my way out of this myself now. Mm-hmm. You know, it started as an academic challenge to Etzioni the American Sociological Association and the Communitarian Network you know, became something much more personal along the way. And today, it's just, I don't want to live under this. I don't want to live with these people. I don't want them to have any power over me or my neighbors or you or anyone. So that's kind of all I have left, you know, is just, why are we letting them do it? Who are they? So you have quite deliberately taken yourself out of the system in order to do your research. Yeah. And this is guiding the way that you're living your life now. Yes, and it's a really hard life because it's almost impossible to do. You can't get away from it. I build my own yurts out of scrap materials 
And uh, a lot of people think I'd like totally, you know, become a bum, I guess is what their term for me would be. But I don't ask for handouts. I'm not on government assistance. I don't feel like I can take their money, which is fine because they're going to pull all these social services from people in the United States pretty soon anyway. So I'm glad I'm not dependent on them. I live very frugally. Take my suffering in stride. I've actually taken my suffering and done something really wonderful for myself. Mm -hmm. I'm a lot healthier. I'm 57. And had I stayed in my comfortable life, I don't think I would be anywhere near as vigorous as I am today because I have to be. (laughs) I I camp year-round in Alaska. But I've managed to learn a lot of things. I kind of like this primitive lifestyle for myself. I would never suggest anyone else does it. But I had a purpose. I have a a higher calling for myself, if you will. Okay, that sounds corny, but it's true. So I'm just going along with it and hoping that it's the right thing to do. Hoping more than anything, Julian, that I'm not playing into the dialectic and helping the communitarians with my work. That was the main thing that concerned me. I don't see how you could possibly be doing that. No, I think you are exposing this philosophy, uh, and indeed this religion. Well, it, it sure looks like it now because I'm not successful, and that's the sign to me that I'm doing. I'm on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> that's what I keep telling myself too. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're quite right, actually. Yes. Well, Nikki, it has been fantastic to have you on. Thank you ever so much for sparing this time to talk to us. I know you're standing there in the cold, and uh, we actually had to stop the interview at one point so you could go back in and have a warm-up. It must be freezing where you are. But uh, thanks for all the work that you've done and uh, all the time that you spent with us today. It's a very, very difficult subject to come to grips with. But I do hope that from this conversation, at least we've had some kind of flavour of uh, this communitarian philosophy so that people can get an idea of what it's about and then move from there to actually reading the text itself. So thanks ever so much, Nikki, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for having me, Julian. You're a nice man.